Good morning, everyone. Uh, the sermon for today is entitled "The Necessity of Godliness." And if uh, in, I can see a few people now uh, turning to Titus, uh, please open your Bibles to that. And as you do so, let me just ask the question: What is godliness? Uh, we have uh, we've touched on that a number of times as we've, we've preached through the first chapter of Titus. But what is godliness? Uh, In his book entitled The Practice of Godliness, uh, Jerry Bridges, a well-known author, he defined godliness this way. He said, Godliness is devotion to God that results in a life that is pleasing to Him. Godliness is a devotion to God that results in a life that is pleasing to Him. And he explains further, Godliness is more than Christian character, It is Christian character that springs from a devotion to God. But it is also true that devotion to God always results in godly character. And he offers this critique when he says, It is sad that many Christians do not have this aura of godliness about them. They may be very talented and personable, or very busy in the Lord's work, or even apparently successful in some avenues of Christian service, and still not be godly. Why? Because they are not devoted to God. They may be devoted to a vision, or to a ministry, or to their own reputation as a Christian, but not to God. So godliness is devotion to God that results in a life that is pleasing to Him. This is a necessity in the Christian life. In Titus chapter 1, verse 1, the Apostle Paul declared that he was a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Now in the opening chapter of this letter, Paul shows how godliness is to be displayed in the life of the elders of the church and then he shows how godliness was disdained in the life of the false teachers But now, as we enter chapter 2, Paul explains how godliness is to be expressed in the life of the church. Chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says to Titus, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. It's not simply a matter of teaching sound doctrine, but teaching that which accords with sound doctrine. In chapter 2, Paul is about to get intensely personal as he sets up the standards of godliness for different groups of people in the church. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to delve into this more thoroughly. So I encourage all of us at the outset to be asking the Holy Spirit to help us, each one of us, to be humble as we read what God specifically commands for ourselves here. But our focus today is in verse 1. And our aim is to see very clearly the necessity of godliness. And as we do, let these words of Jerry Bridges ring in your ears. He says, We must never lose sight of the fact that devotion to God is the mainspring of Christian character and the only foundation upon which it can be successfully built. So Titus 2 verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. 
In helping us understand the necessity of godliness, Paul begins with a godly contrast. He has just spent a great deal of attention on the nature of the false teachers. And now he tells Titus, he shows what he expects of him. He says, this is what the false teachers are like. This is what they're doing. This is what they're teaching. But as for you, you, Titus, are not to be like them. And by implication, this naturally extends to the elders whom Titus uh, was to appoint in the church as a Crete. And of course, this would then apply to elders in all places at all times. But we could probably extend this as well to any godly leader, whatever capacity they are serving in within the church. Paul says, look at the false teachers and don't be like that. So what were the false teachers like? What were they doing? Well, let's just recap what we've seen in chapter 1. In verse 10, the false teachers were insubordinate, empty talkers and false, sorry, and deceivers. But godly leaders are not to be like that. In verse 11, the false teachers were upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. But godly leaders are not to be like that. In verse 16, the false teachers, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But godly leaders are not to be like that. Sometimes we we learn a great deal by watching others and steering clear of the attitudes they express and the actions they engage in. We, We watch the way that others live and we make a mental note to ourselves saying, I will never be like that. And yet it's not enough to know what to avoid. Uh, We also have to know what it is we are to act on. And the scripture informs us of this in lots of places. For instance, in Ephesians 4, Paul writes in, in verses 22 to 24 that the believers were taught to put off your old selves, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So there's this negative aspect followed by a positive aspect. Put off your old selves, put on the new self. Or think of what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2, where he says, Do not be conformed to this world. That's the negative, isn't it? Don't be like that. Don't conform yourself to the ways of this world. But in the positive, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Don't be conformed, be transformed. Only in the first chapter of Titus, in the the personal qualities of an elder, uh, Paul gave a list of things these men were, were to not be like. Don't be like that. But then a list of things these men were to be like. Don't be this, be this. We need to know both. And so Paul says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Don't teach falsehood. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. And what accords with sound doctrine? Godliness. And we'll look at this command more in a moment. But it's important to see that while Titus was expected to teach godliness to the church, he was also supposed to be paying attention to that teaching in his own life. 
This is clear from what Paul says in verses 7 to 8, where he says to Titus, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. For the godly leader, then, it's not simply a matter of teaching truth, but living out that truth. If our lives don't match our teaching, then we lose all credibility. Now, just turn in your Bibles back to 1 Timothy and to chapter 4. In previous weeks, we've we've looked at the first verses of this chapter as it relates to the nature of false teachers, but... When you look at what Paul does as he continues through the chapter. So in 1 Timothy 4, in verse 6, he says this. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So Paul is saying that a good servant of Christ is someone who points out the false teachers, who clarifies the deception and lies and leads people to the truth of God's word. That is what a good servant of Christ does. And for the spiritual leader, it is imperative that they themselves are sustained and nourished by the teaching of Scripture. They are continually trained in good doctrine. That is certainly a clear word for leaders and for those aspiring to leadership, that they must be investing themselves in the study and the love of God's word. Listen to these words from the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon. He says this, Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves. As I have seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the word of the Lord. Not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it until we have taken it into our inmost parts. It is idle merely to let the eye glance over the words or to recollect the poetical expressions or the historic facts, but it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last... You come to speak in scriptural language and your very style is fashioned upon scripture models. And what is better still, your spirit is flavoured with the words of the Lord. Those are some good words right there. To be so immersed in the scriptures that its words become fixed in our hearts and our minds should be our great desire, that that it just flows out of us naturally in the way that we speak and we act. And yet there is more. We must focus on the way that we act. You see, it's not simply about knowing the truth. It is about living the truth. We're still in uh, Timothy chapter 4, and we read this in verses 7 to 8. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And then just flick down to verse 12. He says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. 
you see the focus of, of Paul's exhortations to Timothy in these verses? What is he calling Timothy to abide in? Godliness. Godly behavior. He's saying that godly beliefs must be accompanied by godly behavior. And he ties those two things together in verse 16, where he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. On yourself and the teaching, the way you live and the way you speak. Paul is simply calling Timothy to walk the talk. Both the walk and the talk are important. People try and and separate these things. They try and focus on on one, giving one more attention than the other. They'll they'll emphasise teaching but miss the necessity of displaying those truths in the way they live. Or or others uh, will emphasise the necessity of living well to the expense of teaching. As we know, doctrine divides. So we just get rid of that and we'll just love them into the kingdom. But the godly leader must have both. Godliness is a necessity that the faithful leader cannot be without. If godly leaders are to stand out from false teachers, there must be a contrast not only in their teaching, but in the reality of their teaching expressed in the way that they live their lives. It's in this light that we hear Paul's command in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 11 at the end of the the book. He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And those things are all the false uh, teaching and and bad behavior of the the teachers that Paul was uh, speaking against. Flee these things, Timothy. And do what instead? Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Pursue these things. So there is a godly contrast, but we need to look more specifically about the godly command. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. We're back now in Titus 2 verse 1. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This command takes us straight back to the opening verse of the letter, uh, where Paul emphasised that saving truth leads to godliness in the believer. Justification always leads to sanctification. A person declared forgiven and righteous by the grace of God and the work of Christ, which is justification, will always lead a person who... uh, always be a person, that person who's justified will always be a person who then spends their life seeking to be made more and more like Christ through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Justification always leads to sanctification. This truth is borne out in Titus chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul says that the grace of God that's brought about salvation then trains believers. Trains the believers to do what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present. So in Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul makes the point that truth leads to godliness. But now in chapter 2, verse 1, he focuses on the necessity of teaching godliness. The Greek word underlying the word accord means that which is fitting or proper or suitable. 
Titus is to give practical instruction that is consistent with the theological foundation. What does a devotion to God look like in the life of the devotee? But it's not left up to Titus to figure out, figure that out for himself, as Paul fills that out in the following verses. And here is one of the many benefits to consistent expository preaching in the life of the church. You see, the Bible has a wonderful balance of theological and practical instruction. And doctrine is always tied to duty. And we've seen that already uh, in the letter to Titus. Packed into the opening verses uh, of the book is a deep theological treatise on the on salvation and sanctification, on the, the nature of God, the deity of Christ, uh, on the nature of the apostolic office. Paul fits that into four verses. Then this is followed with practical instruction for what the leadership of the church is to be like, and then warnings about uh, the, what the false teachers are like and how they're to be dealt with. From our point in the study, we're now moving into the necessity of godliness and what the standards of godliness are for for different groups within the church. But then later on, uh, we'll be brought back into a deeper reflection on the grace of God and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit before finishing with, with more comment about how Christians are to interact with one another in the church. It's what makes Titus such a wonderful book in the life of the church. Now, sometimes Paul goes back and forth rather quickly uh, between theology and practice, like he does here. At other times, he, he focuses longer on one matter before linking it to the other. You know, if we think of some of the other letters of, of Paul, like Romans or Ephesians, we, we can almost uh, put a line down the middle of the book where the first half is doctrine and and the second half shows how that doctrine works out in practice. Of course, even the the theological is is practically applicable, isn't it? Just because a text of Scripture tells us us something uh, to know uh, rather than something to do, it doesn't mean that it isn't an application. Sometimes the Scriptures call us to know something. Sometimes the Scriptures call us to be convicted of something. Sometimes they call us to do something or to not do something. But all of that is practical application. And we live in a world and a culture that tells us that if something doesn't work straight away, then it's of no use. Get rid of it. Find something else. Uh, This culture also tells us that if it's something that I can't actually do, then I don't want to hear about it. But as Christians, we are called to meditate on God's word and let all of its truth transform us. As the indwelling spirit illuminates our minds to his word, he, he helps us bring the deep theological truths to bear in our own context. In my preaching over the years, I've been asked a number of times, why are you harping on a particular topic? What's going on there? And my answer is generally, because it's in the text. Um, For instance, we've spent a number of weeks looking at the topic of eldership and false teaching. Why? Because the first chapter of Titus is all about eldership and false teaching. In a couple of weeks, a person may well say, why are you spending all this time harping on the topic of godliness in the church? What do you think my answer is going to be? Because the second half, the second chapter of Titus is all about godliness in the life of the church. 
So as an expository preacher, I have have nothing to say other than what is in the word. And I'm guided and bound by what is in the word. You don't want to hear what I have to say. I don't want to hear what I have to say. All we want to hear is from this. But as we work our way through bit by bit, week by week, we see that God has laid out his word with a beautiful balance of theology and practical matters. And the wonderful truth of scripture is that it is utterly sufficient in helping believers understand how to live for God, both in an individual sense and as a a corporate body of believers in the church. Uh, I've mentioned these verses in previous weeks of our study in Titus, but they bear reiterating and remembering. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This passage teaches us a number of things about scripture, but in particular it teaches us about the sufficiency of scripture, that it is a complete and final word. Look at verse 17. It's God's word and is able to make the man of God or indeed the woman of God complete, equipped for every good work. Now ask yourself, if the word of God is able to do that, then do we need to look for more words from God, more revelation from God? Or do we need to look in another worldly source for equipping us to do good works? If we believe what the scripture tells us here, uh, then we will trust in the sufficiency of scripture. Trust that within the pages of the Bible is all we need to live godly lives. But there's a second verse that speaks of the sufficiency of scripture. Uh, If we head to the right side of our Bibles, to 2 Peter and chapter 1. Toward the thinner end on the right right side of the, the Bible. 2 Peter chapter 1. And let's read verses 3 and 4. Just give you a second to find that. Two Peter 1 verses 3 and 4 says this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So through Christ Jesus, believers become partakers of the divine nature which does not mean that we become little gods, that we become divine ourselves, as some false teachers assert. It simply means that we experience the eternal life of God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as we are made sons and daughters of God. We've become new creations in Christ. But look at what this means. Through the life-giving and indwelling Spirit of Christ, uh, we are granted all things that pertain to life and godliness. But this is not an abstract gift. The indwelling Holy Spirit illuminates the word that he inspired. 
That's how we're granted all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so ask yourself again, if believers are granted all things that pertain to life and godliness, then is there anything missing? What does all things mean except all things? The Bible, it doesn't purport to cover every aspect on every matter. Although whatever it does speak of, whether in science or in history or geography, it speaks the truth. However, it does purport to tell us everything we need to know about some things. It tells sinners everything they need to know to be saved. But also tells us everything about another topic. What is that? Life and godliness. It not only tells us everything we need to know about salvation, it tells us everything we need to know about sanctification. And that's what Peter means by life and godliness. He means we have all the resources we need to fight against sin and to grow in Christ. We need to be clear, however, that by speaking about life, uh, Peter is speaking about spiritual resources, not medical resources. In Ephesians 1, Paul says that that the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Nothing has been short of that. But they're talking about spiritual resources, not medical. He's not in any way inferring that Christians don't need to see a doctor if something is pathologically wrong with them, that is medically wrong with them. In fact, James makes this clear in his letter. In chapter 5, verse 14, you know, that well-known but Uh, misunderstood passage we're told is anyone among you sick let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the lord remember that that verse there when james's day anointing with oil was a medical practice and so he's simply advocating for the appropriate use of spiritual and physical means pray for the sick and then point them to the best medical source around The problem is that in today's culture, people have turned things that the Bible explicitly deems as sin uh, into some sort of mental disorder. There's something uh, just physically wrong with them, not spiritually wrong. Charles Hodge is a well-seasoned biblical counsellor and he stated in a a 2014 conference message uh, which was entitled, What's Medical About Mental Illness? And he said this, Never call anything a disease that the Bible calls sin. Never call anything sin unless the scriptures do. And always look for pathology. Always look for a medical reason. If there's something medically wrong with a person, deal with that. If there are issues in our lives that are medical, then we should seek someone who has studied a medical textbook. But for the issues that are spiritual, then we should go to the one place that supplies us everything we need for life and godliness. And since we have this amazing resource, let us immerse ourselves in it. Since we have this blessed gift, we are to follow what Peter says in verses 5 to 7. He says, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. 
through the power of the indwelling spirit who illuminates his inspired word to our hearts and minds, we are to work for godliness in our lives and the spirit will produce his fruit. We must understand the importance of seeking these things in our own lives and that from a leadership perspective, the importance of teaching these things. And so this godly command is intended to lead to a godly community. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now Titus is not called to teach to an empty room. So who are the recipients of this teaching? Who is the intended audience? It is the church. Teaching what accords with godliness is so that God's people can grow in their godliness. But while we're all called to grow in godliness, that will look differently for different groups within the church. And so in verses 2 to 10, Paul outlines the standards of godliness for different ages and genders. He explains what godliness looks like for older men, for older women, for younger women, for younger men, and also for bond slaves, uh, which in a modern application speaks of how Christians should act in the workforce if they are employees. And we'll go through these over the next couple of weeks. God has always intended for his people to be godly and to stand out from the world. If you turn with me to Exodus 19. In Exodus 19... We're at the point where God had brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt and led them to the wilderness of Sinai where Moses ascended the mountain. And when Moses reached the top, we're told this from verse 3. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the Israelites were set apart from the other peoples as God's own people. And not because of their own greatness, but because of the greatness of God's grace. They were to reflect his holy character to the nations around them. And through them, God would bring salvation to the whole world. Of course, they showed themselves incapable of obedience and were themselves in need of a saviour. And so from the Israelites came the Messiah, the true Israel, Jesus Christ. Only in his perfect life and perfect sacrifice could people be made acceptable to God. Only by trusting in Christ alone could people receive the promises of God. Well, now turn with me back to Peter's writings in 1 Peter chapter 2. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 5, P 
Peter says this to the believers. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So acceptance by God comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. But then look at what Peter says in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? These are the same words that God commanded Moses to say to the people of Israel. But now, through union with Christ, the true Israel, believers receive these blessed words. Now, is this description what we think of when we think of the church? Is this what guides all that we do and say? Not only when we're interacting with other believers, but also in the privacy of our own homes or in in public before the world? Are we engaging in the purpose for which God has brought us into his family? Are we proclaiming the excellencies of God? And are we doing this not only in word, which is absolutely crucial, but also in the way that we live our lives? Look at verses 11 to 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the Bible is clear that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And yet it is also abundantly clear that salvation will lead to sanctification. When God redeems sinners and brings them into his family, he begins the process of conforming them to the glory and the goodness of his perfect son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why sound doctrine leads to sound living. Those who abide in the truth will be transformed by the truth. And so we we see the necessity of Paul's command to teach what accords with sound doctrine. The church is not to be a community that simply knows truth. The church is to be a community that exhibits truth. As I bring things to a close, turn with me to the Psalms. Fingers are getting some exercise today. It's good, it'll keep you warm. Psalm 14 and 15. These... Two psalms sitting side by side, we see an incredible contrast. Not dissimilar to what we've just looked at between the ungodliness of the false teachers and the godliness that is called for in Christian teachers and the church as a whole. Now, Psalm 14 speaks of the fool, the one who does not believe in God. And the first verse alone, we don't need to read the whole thing for the moment, but the first verse alone gives you a pretty clear picture. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt 
They do abominable deeds and there is no one who does good. So in God's eyes, those who do not believe in him do nothing that he considers good. Well, that sums up what we've seen in Titus 1 about the false teachers, doesn't it? Right there. But then look at Psalm 15. Right next door, what do we see? We see a picture of a righteous life. A picture of what godliness looks like. So let's read Psalm 15 and let these words imprint on your minds. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Godliness is a necessary part of the Christian life. And as we study this more specifically in the coming weeks, may we humbly hear God's directives and know that the one who follows them will find joy and shall never be moved. May we have a devotion to God that results in a life that is pleasing to him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truth and life to us. We thank you that in your pages we find everything sufficient to uh, grow us, to conform us to Christ. We thank you that it's not in our own power that we seek to do this, however. It's by the power of your indwelling spirit who guides our hearts and minds, works in us, strengthens us, illuminates your word as we study it, helping us apply it in our own context, our own spheres, our own uh, ways in which we need to uh, grow. Father, we pray uh, that these words today, as we've looked at the necessity of godliness, that uh, you will humble each one of us and that we will see that Uh, that our salvation is so that Christ can uh, present a blameless and and glorious and beautiful church to himself. Please help us to, to recognize this, to seek in the power of your spirit to be conformed, to be more like our Savior. And in his precious name we pray. Amen.